Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 47 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 47, we'll be looking at this chapter in its entirety this morning. And I will pair it oftentimes with James chapter 4. So if you want to turn there and maybe, I don't know, use that little string in your Bible or something to like keep it there or something. I guess it's not really just a string, but you get the idea. Um, so I'll be pairing those two uh, chapters closely together this morning. Before we go to his word, let's go to him again in prayer and ask that he would help us with it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would indeed help us with it. We see around us a nation that is falling, and this is nothing new. Our nation will not be the first to come to an end, and it will not be the last either. And so, Lord, as we do that, help us to be grounded, not in our sense of of rightness because we're good, but because you are, because your word is true. And were it not for your word, we would not understand truth or know it. Were it not for you, we would still be dead in our sins. And so, Lord, as we come to your holy word, please help us with it. Guide us, convict us of our sins, lead us to your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I read this text, it made me think of a couple of things. I see this text as a warning to the church. It's going to talk about a fallen, it's going to talk about an empire that's falling. But I see it as a warning to the church. It made me think of some statistics. In 2020, 390,000 Americans, and I got these, these are Census Bureau statistics, not stuff that I just randomly know. Uh, 390,000 Americans were injured because they decided to text while driving. That is 0.2% of licensed drivers in this country, which might seem like a relatively small number. 0.2%, I'll take those chances. Yet, COVID, killed in the last year and plus, killed more than 600,000 Americans, which consequently is also 0.2% of the population of our country. On one hand, we have a global pandemic that we all took certain precautions because of. We wore masks, we quarantined when we needed to, we even stopped meeting together as a church for a time at various points to somehow contribute to stopping the spread of this virus. Yet, I venture to guess that someone here in here this morning sent a text from the driver's seat this morning. Why? Well, with COVID, we were convinced to take these precautions because it's something that we can't control, right? It was something that could happen to us through no fault of our own. It was a small chance of us catching it and dying, Really small chance, only 0.2% chance that we were going to catch it and then die because of COVID. Very small. But we took precautions, and we did for more than a year. But texting and driving, what's the difference then? Why do we still do that when we know that it's dangerous? Because we're all convinced that it only applies to bad drivers. Not us. We're good drivers. We're able to do this. I'll hear this from kids who've been driving for a year or less. I'm good at that, so I can go ahead and do it. It doesn't bother me. No, you're not. You're not. 
I can do this because I'm a good driver, which automatically assumes then that those who were injured and died because of texting and driving were just bad drivers. What does this have to do with Isaiah 47? Well, in Isaiah, we witnessed the down, in Isaiah 47, we witnessed the downfall of Babylon. In the text, while these warnings that were given aren't explicit, they're implicit warnings that are given to the Word of God. And we tend to take serious some warnings. But usually when it comes to whether or not we should get mixed up in worldly pursuits and to the extent of which we should get mixed up in worldly pursuits, sometimes our mindset tends to be, well, I'm different. Don't worry about me. I can control it. People will say this when it comes to things like wealth or extramarital relationships, drugs and alcohol. There's lots of things that we could name here. I can control myself. Don't worry about me. I'm different than all of those other people that have been affected by these things. We arrogantly assume that while others have failed, we are the exception. No one thinks that there'll be a statistic. Most do not when they even become one. But statistics are that, you know, there for a reason. They tend to show the truth of the matter. We see the fall of a great empire here. We see their judgment. We see their ultimate end. And with that, we have a picture of what it means then to stand against the Creator. What it means to stand in opposition to Him. In Christ, we also see a picture of what we then as Christians have been delivered from and what we should no longer then be lured into as His people. So as we consider this text, we're going to break it up into three main ideas, the folly of the world, the judgment of the world, and then a warning to the church. And so with that, let's stand together, please, as we read Isaiah chapter 47, starting at verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence, go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people, I profaned my heritage, I gave them into your hand, you showed them no mercy. On the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be a mistress forever, so that you... Did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness, and you said, No one sees me. 
Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for you will, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens and gaze into the stars, who at new moons make known what shall be, what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fires consume them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in their own direction. There is no one to save you. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we come to this text, remember what we talked about last week in Isaiah 46. Last week we looked specifically at the idolatry of the Babylonians. We talked about their pagan worship. We talked about the ceremonies concerning their gods and how... And we looked at our own idolatry with that as well. And so today, rather than looking at a particular portion of this empire's fall, we are looking at the whole picture. The entirety of Babylon is going to fall in our passage today. That's what we're looking at. Now, the fall of Babylon is a matter of historical fact. Yet, Isaiah and many writers after him use their fall as a metaphor to represent what it looks like to stand in opposition to the Creator. You see this in this book. You see it particularly as you look at the book of Revelation, which we studied together and I think pairs so well with this book. And you remember from our study in that book, Babylon was a picture of the world. It was a picture of the hedonistic pleasures of the world and how the pursuit of those things only led to the doom of those who followed them. So as we work through this, remember that while Babylon the empire is a literal empire that is now buried in the sand, what they stood for is very much alive and well today in our world. So with that, look with me, the first point, the folly of the world. Again, look at verses 1 through 3 with me. And notice what's happening here in verses 1 through 3. Come and sit down in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne. What's happening to this person that's in, in Babylon, this woman? She's going from a throne and she's being asked to sit in the dust. Look what's, what's no more will you be called tender and delicate. What's she going to be done instead? Take the millstone and grind flour. And notice what else is going on. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your leg, uh, legs, pass through the water. You get the idea that this person is a worker now and they're having to go back and forth across the river and she's having to lift up her dress as she does that to keep it from dragging in the water. This is not something that someone who sits on the throne would normally do. This is the work of a servant. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. So on one hand, you have this picture of a woman who's well-dressed, 
tender and delicate, and then quickly becomes a woman subjected to things that would seemingly become or be unbecoming of one of her status. She's taken from a throne, sits in the dust, she's made to work, she has to lift up her skirt as she goes through the water and does this labor. So here we have a picture of the royalty, the majesty of Babylon being reduced to absolutely nothing, being completely humiliated as the Lord takes vengeance. And why does he take vengeance? We get a picture of that in verse 4. He's the redeemer of his people. This Babylon is the one who captured his people. Our redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. How many times have we heard those words in this book? Over and over, Isaiah is reminding the people of God that they have a redeemer. The Lord is his name. And so you contrast, or that, that contrast continues to happen in verses 5 through 7. Sit in silence. Go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, which is just another word for Babylon. For you shall no more be called the mistress of the kingdoms, or the mistress of the world. I was angry with my people and profaned my heritage. This is the Lord talking, being angry with his own people. And so he gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said... The Babylonian woman said, I shall be a mistress forever so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. She's no longer going to be a mistress to the world. Babylon was known the world over for its love of pleasure, but now it would be a dark and silent place, no longer loved by the world. In verse 6, the Lord kind of Breaks off, acknowledging that though it was him again that had his people captured, Babylon mistreated them in their captivity. The Lord delivered his own people from captivity, but their captors made their burdens heavy. So now they're going to face judgment. They're probably starting to think, you know, their captors are probably starting to think that this was all about them, that it was totally up to them who had done all these wonderful things, right? I shall be a mistress forever, says Babylon. As if you could, you could almost take a snapshot of what was going on in Babylon. They, they looked around, they seen nothing but opulence and wealth, and they thought, of course, we're the most powerful empire in the land. This is going to last forever. And now you can't even find most of it because it's so deep in the sand in that part of the world. It's the folly of the world to think that this life and this version of life will indeed last forever. Nothing will change. We'll always be on top. We'll always be. We'll always have the things that we have. Life will always be like this. And when it's not, we'll look back and wish that it was. Does it sound familiar at all? You might even look back at times and long for better days. You see all this, all, I mean, you see this all the time. Well, I remember when I was a kid, blah, 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 blah. And people will go on about how much things were wonderful back then, and they really weren't. They weren't because we only remember the good things because why would we purpose to remember the bad things? We want to look back as if those good old days were such a thing. Turn with me to James chapter 4. James gives us a pretty bleak picture when it 
comes to our lives, when it comes to us thinking that this way of our lives is the forever way, this snapshot, be it Babylon or America or whatever it is, is is going to last forever. James chapter 4, we'll start at verse 13. Not First Peter chapter 4. I just had James. What happened to it? This James is a small book. Alright, James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go and do such and such, or go to, into such and such a town and spend a year there in trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. That appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Consider this lady who says, I shall be a mistress forever. Or for those people who look back and think, hmm. Just wish we could bring that time forward and have that time as the forever snapshot of who we are and what we represent. We are but a mist, brothers and sisters in Christ. The word there is where we get our word atmosphere. Go out and just get a bowl full of atmosphere right now and see it and touch it. It's nothing. You can't see it or touch it. It's gone as soon as you get a bowl full of it. It's gone. Our lives are like the air that we breathe. It's so fleeting that we can't even see it. Yet if we're not careful, we can make bold claims like Babylon, thinking that the end doesn't actually apply to us. It applies to everyone else, of course, but not Babylon the Great, not America the Great, whatever you want to fill in the blank with. This is important, not only for our lives as a believer, but understanding the things that tempt us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Understanding the perspective of the world, which is a a fleeting perspective. The world sees itself as eternal. It sees its purposes as absolutely right and true. But when we bring the word of God to bear on the purposes of the world, we see the folly and we see their end. That brings me to the next point, the judgment of the world. Look with me back in Isaiah 47. Keep keep something there in James 4. We'll be back. Look in Isaiah 47 verses 8 and 9. Therefore, hear this, you lovers of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart. Notice what they say about themselves. I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, is what they say, or know the loss of children. We're going to last forever, Babylon is. Well, this is what the Lord says about that. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children. And widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. Again, we have this idea that Babylon does not see itself as finite. They only see everything else as finite. They see themselves as eternal. There is this self-deification here. I am, and there is no one besides me. If you go back and you read the previous two or three chapters, what do we hear the Lord over and over saying about himself? I am, and there is no one besides me. We even see that in verse 4, right? He's, he is claiming his name, his Lord of hosts, his, 
as the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer. He is. He is. There's no one besides Him. But here, Babylon is making that same claim. They're saying, I am. Almost claiming the divine name for themselves. Not only that, but they claim that they're never going to have widows. They're never going to have a loss of children. Meaning that they think their generations are just going to continue and to continue for all eternity. Perhaps it's the Babylonians that would inherit the earth after all. As the Lord hears this as one who is actually all-powerful and actually eternal, he announces the opposite fate for Babylon. They will be widows. They will be childless all at once. Their judgment will be swift. They will join the other great empires before them, all of them being buried under the sand for something for people thousands of years to now, from now to look at and think, oh, that's really neat. Look with me, verses 10 and 11. Again, looking at their, their thoughts concerning themselves. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, there is no other besides me, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster will fall upon you, which you will not be able to atone for. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, to which you know nothing. With all of their technological advances, with everything that they had, all the knowledge that they had, they were unable to stop the judgment of the Lord. He rose them up according to his own purposes. He also caused them to fall according to his own purposes. And this should do a few things for us. First, it should help us to see our own world at a glance. As we see it from the perspective of those who are children of God, who are eternal, who will last with God forever and always, a people kept for himself, a people different from the world, we should be able to look here and see the world at a glance. You watch the news. You watch some talk show or whatever, and you get the general consensus that all the people, whatever side they represent of things, they generally believe that they have arrived. Rather than learn from history, which history teaches us that no one has done that, rather than learn from history, they pretend that it doesn't exist. They mock it until they finally become part of it, which is everyone's end. I am, and there is none besides me, is the rallying cry really of every kind of movement, whether it be a progressive movement, whatever, conservative movement, it doesn't matter. They all think, I have the answer, look at us, we finally figured it out, here we are, follow us to victory, whatever. And all other schools of thought are completely squashed because we are right, glory be to us. And to be sure, this isn't a political thing. It looks that way in our world today because our country has become so entrenched in that. But it goes much deeper than that. It's rebellion of their creator and against their creator. It's the idea that there isn't a creator because we create our own destinies. I am, and there is no other besides me, only suggests that we think ourselves and whatever it is that we believe to be all-powerful. 
and all-knowing, and everyone else is wrong. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we fall for the schemes of the world, we have convinced ourselves that while we see a fallen system, we ourselves are capable of doing great things with it. Take the pursuit of wealth. Now, just this is just one thing. It could be literally anything. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy at all. God uses wealthy people to do His work. For that, I'm thankful. Yet we can't forget the the words of our Savior. You can't serve God and money. Did Jesus say there's a fleeting thing? No, He talked about money all the time. Those who think that they're above those temptations, well, it doesn't really apply to me because I'm a better person than all those other people who have fallen trapped to it. You're not. Those who think that they are above those things should take heed lest they fall. The same sorts of things could be literally said about anything that we might find ourselves tempted by. Something in the world that looks alluring and it looks like, yeah, I think I could totally handle that. Just like I think I've just got to send a couple of words as I drive down the road. I can handle this relationship outside my marriage because I'm different than the other 40% of spouses who have ended their marriages because of infidelity. That doesn't apply to me because I'm not them. We all think that. I can be involved in shady practices because most of what I do is absolutely moral. It's just these few other things that may not be so much. You get the idea. It bears itself out in how we see God. It bears itself out in how we treat others. We could walk through the entire moral law and see all the ways that we think we are somehow different than the world. We are somehow better than them. I am. There is none besides me. James 4, again, I think captures this really well. Look with me at the first four verses of James 4. James 4, verses 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James captured this really well. We have this struggle within us, but we can't lose sight of the fact, brothers and sisters in Christ, that there's only two sides. There's no real gray areas. James doesn't give us a lot of leeway here. He says, if you want to be a friend of the world, you also are saying, I want to be an enemy of God. Just go and read a little bit in Isaiah. Find out what happens to the enemies of God. You can just reread the chapter we just read. It's not pretty. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And we can't lose sight of the fact also that we were all there. Those of us who say we're in Christ, we were all there at once. Romans 5.10 reminds us that our reconciliation with God happened when we were called what? Enemies of God. We were once all enemies of God and we've been reconciled to him in Christ. That's what makes any return to the world so strange. Imagine 
God looking at us, seeing enemies, our Lord Jesus redeeming us, God now calling us friends, and then us saying, yeah, I left some things behind in the world. It's so strange and foreign that someone who the Lord now calls a friend would also call the world a friend. And understand this, it's not that we won't struggle. James points out, James points out our passions are going to be at war with us. Yet when Jesus died to free his people from their sins, that freedom that we experience in Christ is real. We don't have these attachments to the world any longer. We are free from any need to be tempted by the world. It has nothing for us. It can't actually help us at all. All of its trappings, all the things that look so alluring to us are just straight poison. We will never need anything as as those who are in Christ. We will never need anything but Christ. Anything else is a lie. And you aren't the one who's different. You aren't the one that can dabble in the world and still be okay. You can't dabble in the things of the world and dabble in the things of God. You cannot serve two masters. And this brings us to the last point, a warning to the church. Go back with me to Isaiah 47. Let's look at those last couple verses. Starting at verse 12. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. A little sarcasm here from the Lord. Perhaps you may be able to succeed in your sorcery. Perhaps you may inspire terror. As if they're going to like scare the Lord off. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens and who gaze at stars and who at the new moons make known all that shall come upon you. You get this idea that they're trying to use their astrologers to, to help them. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, whom you have done business with in your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Babylon trusted in their sorcery to do many things. They would gaze at the stars. They would be convinced that they were able to somehow divine the future from them. Yet as they stand compared to an omniscient God, they look really silly looking at the moon and thinking the moon is somehow talking to them. Again, you get a bit of sarcasm from the words of the Lord. Perhaps you'll be able to succeed. Yet when when they see the fire of judgment... It won't be a fire for them to warm themselves by, as Isaiah said. And it won't be a fire that only lasts for a little while. It's only going to hurt for a little while, and then you'll be over it. It's an eternal, unquenchable fire. The warning for the church here is clear. What does the world have to offer us? If you were to look at Babylon here and say, well, maybe Babylon's something that I could really put a lot of stock in. I mean, imagine yourself several thousand years ago. They only have defeat to offer you. If they were actually able to see their future, it's only piles of sand piled upon all of their buildings in grandeur. This is what we have to offer you. Absolute destruction. It's the same thing that the world has to offer us. Defeat. But what do we have in Christ? What do we have in Jesus Christ? We have complete victory over sin, 
We have victory over death. What's the world's answer? Only more sin, right? Only more of the things that would, that would separate us from God. Their attempts to cheat death or just simply concede to it altogether. In Christ, our sin has been nailed to the cross. It's no more. It's gone. Christ is still not on that cross. We can't go and see our sin because he's removed it as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. And where is death? It's completely stripped of its power. How do I know? Well, Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father. He's not in a tomb somewhere. He defeated death. And so what promise do I have, brothers and sisters in Christ? I also have that same promise. But in the world, we're given the temptation of these temporal enjoyments. But in Christ, we are given the promise of eternal rewards. And so then what do we do, brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, turn with me again to James 4. And I'll, I, I love this chapter for this. James has some good words for us. When it comes to our hearts, the struggle within, the things that we would do, thanking ourselves to be more special than we are. Verse 7, James chapter 4, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This sort of writing is why James is a favorite one of believers. He's very plain spoken. He's very blunt. This is what you should do. This is what's wrong with you. And this is what you should do. Submit to God. Why? He's the only power of salvation. He's the only creator. We're not it. We're, we, we can't say, I am. There has been no other before me. We can't say those things and they be true. God is the only creator. He is the only redeemer for his people. When we do that, notice what happens. The devil, who is the very personification of evil, is powerless. He flees before us. And it's not because we've somehow like, you know, flexed our spiritual muscles or something like that and take that devil. Satan's not afraid of us at all. We can't even hardly start the day without sinning. He's not afraid of us. He's afraid of his creator. And that's why when I have faith in him and I submit to God, the devil is absolutely afraid. Not of me, but of the one who made him. He see, he flees his creator. When we trust in the Lord, Satan will find easier targets. Notice the language. It's about humility. It's about recognizing sin and dealing with it. And it's one of the functions, brothers and sisters, of a healthy church, of helping one another deal with sin. Show me a church where everyone appears to have everything together. And that's all we want to know about one another is that we appear to have everything together. And I'll show you a bunch of people who are hurting inside and who are afraid to let other people know about it. That's why it's so important for us to hear the gospel every single week. Because the truth of the gospel sets us free from having to feel like I have to somehow be better than I am. Jesus is better than I am. And that's why I'm able to say I am free in Christ. In Christ, we don't have to hide because our sins are removed. We are free to trust other people with those things also. To know that we can find help. Our church is perfect in doing this. No, because churches have people like me in them 
We're not perfect at these things. Do churches sometimes mess us up in a horrible way? Yes, they do. Does this mean that we shouldn't still help one another with the sin that we and bear one another's burdens in Christ? Absolutely not. We should be doing those things. If anything, we should do them all the more because we all need help. Again, Jesus didn't come to simply be a guide for people who are just struggling a little bit to hold our hand when we need our hand held and he'll walk with us when we need it. He came to bring a people who were dead in their sins back to life. And that's you and I, brothers and sisters. With his death, he purchased the pardon for all his people. With his resurrection, he assured they would have life for all eternity. We don't need a little Jesus to get through the day. We need the whole Christ because we are dead without him. And if you're here and you're struggling, and that's you, let me say a few things. Call out to Christ. Do what our brother James says here. Submit to God. Repent of trying to do it alone. Rest in the arms of Jesus. Seek out the church. Seek out your brothers and sisters in Christ. Seek out the people who you see here. They love you. They want to help you. And if you're an unbeliever, it's the same for you. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Seek out people who are true to his word and who will guide you to Jesus. That's the only way. It's Jesus Christ. And in conclusion, we have to be careful. Babylon should be a warning to us as we look at the lost world. We're not strong enough to overcome it at all. We must rely on Christ alone. He has already overcome the world. Sin and death on our behalf. We must trust in him and lead the lost world to him. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we hear from your word and hear the fall of Babylon, Lord, help us to be warned that there is nothing there that is worthy. Help us to remember that were it not for you, we would still be your enemies. But because of you, we are called sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, help us to not be tempted by the world, but instead flee to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.